welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. And after a couple of weeks hiatus, it's great to be back together with Dr. Joe Boot. Uh, Like I mentioned, for those of you who are regular weekly listeners, uh, Joe and I have both been uh, independently, separately traveling for different uh, Ezra-related events. Joe is fresh off the plane back in England from the the Right Response Ministries Conference in uh, Georgetown, Texas, which I understand was uh, was a really uh, really encouraging time. Uh, Joel Webin, uh, president of Right Response, was good enough to uh, to invite you and invite us to to uh, represent there. Ezra Institute fellow James White, uh, as well as Daryl Partridge, were also there, and uh, by all reports, really really an excellent time. So I'm glad yeah, uh, glad you were able to go. Glad you're able to uh, to go, and glad you uh, you made it back well. Um. Before we dive in, we've got uh, we've got a full uh, full slate of conversation planned for today. A couple of quick announcements coming up uh, later this month is the Mission of God Conference in Bonaire, Georgia. That's happening Saturday, May twentieth. Joe Boot's going to be there. Uh, Ezra Institute fellow Jeffrey Ventrella, as well as Brian Matson, are going to be speaking. Uh, you're you're not going to want to miss out on that. Tickets are still available. Visit EzraInstitute.com and uh, sign up, participate in the uh, the Mission of God conference in Bonaire, Georgia. All of the information about venue, uh, rates, and everything else is right there on the website. The other, uh, the other event that I want to mention quickly is the American uh, iteration, the, the premiere, the American premiere of the Worldview Leadership Academy. That's happening uh, later this summer, July 30th through to August 4th, and that's in Huntsville, Alabama. This is for teenagers, uh, ages 15 to 18 is the is our general uh, benchmark, and this is a week of worldview training similar to uh, what you would get at any of the Ezra Institute programs, but geared towards and uh, a few very sort of contextual issues for the uh, the next generation. And 
scholarships are available for that uh, for that program. Uh, there's some funding available both for uh, attendance at the program itself and also through our uh, partnership with Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, we've got an arrangement that uh, time spent at the Worldview Leadership Academy can be applied towards uh, course credit at Bryan College. So if you are, uh, if you're considering, or if even if you're uh, currently enrolled at, uh, at Bryan or in, in, intending to uh, to enroll, here's uh, here's an added incentive to uh, participate with two great organizations. If I say so myself, get some uh, some excellent training and have it uh, have it apply towards your degree. There's also a generous uh, scholarship from Bryan College for students who have done our program that there's not only course credit, there's actually uh, a scholarship available to students who have done our programs. Could this get any better? Man, that's, uh, we'll that's how. right. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reminding me though, Joe. Uh, again, visit ezrainstitute.com, find the Worldview Leadership Academy program, and uh, all of the, de- the details are there. And there's also a link to Bryan College where you can uh, you can f- confirm the details of those uh, those scholarship opportunities with uh, with Brian as well. And finally, uh, we are uh, f- some se- several of you have been asking about this, uh, and it's uh, it's exciting to announce that our uh, our American uh, donation portal is uh, is now live. So American uh, supporters and friends uh, been interested in. Uh, in supporting the ministry financially, we're grateful for your support. Uh, you're now able to make tax-deductible donations to the American entity, and that uh, that all supports the ministry, helps us to continue uh, the podcast and produce other resources, put on events, and uh, do all of the things that uh, that God has uh, entrusted us with the responsibility of doing. We're uh, we're grateful for your support, and that uh, that helps us keep going. So again, EzraInstitute.com. Uh, there are there are uh, streams where you can donate to the Canadian, American, or uh, British uh, efforts, and the the uh, those are uh, those are all live and available now. So with that uh, with that done. Like I mentioned, we've got uh, got a lot to uh, to talk about today. A lot going on, uh, Joe. Uh, for you, especially as a uh, as a British man, we're uh, we're talking today about kingship, uh, heraldry, ceremony, tradition, symbolism, and oaths, and all of these things uh, f- have found recent expression. In, uh, in this past weekend's coronation of King Charles III. So we had, uh, we had talked beforehand just about the, uh, the significance of the wording and of the oath and of the, uh, the ceremony uh, more broadly and more specifically. So maybe you can take us through that ceremony uh, that you somehow had time to, uh, to take in during your, uh, your travels. But... Uh, Talk us through this, especially for those of us who who have not grown up uh, with uh, with the monarchy in the background. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a very significant weekend for the United Kingdom and uh, the the Commonwealth uh, because 
people will remember we did a podcast, I think, last year um, on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And, That's right. Uh, even, That's right. even though King Charles uh, became King Charles after the death of his mother, the coronation is actually months later. So the formal um, uh, constitutional aspect of the crowning of the king and um, his uh, oaths and, and receiving oaths and so on, and an ancient service that takes place months later. And so I was actually amazed. I was in the US, um, which was both a huge blessing because it was a fantastic conference that I was at with uh, uh, friends and colleagues there that went tremendously well, packed house. Um, the same time there was a tinge of sadness because I was missing the coronation celebrations uh, back in England. Um, but because I was out of sync uh, with jet lag, um, I did catch some of the service early in the morning um, on uh, the Saturday morning. And then the rest of it, a good friend of mine in Texas met me just before I left on the day of my departure. And uh, we, we sat down with a, with a, with a coffee and, um, and watched the parts that, that I missed. So I was able to, uh, to 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 keep up with some of it, and have caught up with some since I've been since I've been home. But it was a huge weekend, and, and Monday was in mm -hmm. the UK was a was a bank holiday. So Tuesday, literally today, yeah. is kind of people's first day back after the celebrations in the wake of the of the coronation, and everything is fresh in people's minds. Um, for uh, Canadians, of course, King Charles III is the head of state, and is, and Canada is part of the. British Commonwealth. And so that will be familiar yeah. for our American audience. One of the things I mentioned, I uh, didn't tell them what I was amazed at, did I? I waffled on and didn't actually say what I was amazed at. I was amazed <laughs> at, the, at, the, uh, <laughs> at the coverage on US television um, of the coronation um, on multiple stations and some of them covering the whole thing, numerous American journalists uh, in the UK for it. There is a, there is a real fascination in America with uh, the monarchy and of course that's partly because of the familial uh, relationship that exists between uh, the uk and the united states it, it was it was it was of course a british colony it was british colonies in the americas before the founding uh it, their cousins um and so there's there's a natural interest in it because so many americans trace their heritage back to england wales scotland northern ireland uh, which makes up the United Kingdom, um, but there's also a, a broader interest in in monarchy because who doesn't like a good um, prince um, and princess story? Um, you know, get the girl, slay the dragon, um, absolutely, kind of a, 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 yeah, story, and and um, that that holds a certain amount of fascination. And of course, we have a kind of uh, it does tend to be that. Um, more than once now, there's been a, 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 a an English royal, British royal, sort of. Um, I was going to say seduced, but perhaps the word I'm looking for is more captivated by an American actress here and there. And um, mm. there's the whole saga of Prince Harry, uh, which has been in the, the media and uh, with Meghan Merkel, and of course, ever since um, he started criticizing his own family, his popularity has plummeted in the United States. So I actually think that may have even helped people's interest in the coronation, ironically. But there would have been a lot of coverage. And actually, even though um, uh, 
America's constitution, of course, is different to the uh, British constitution being a republic and not a constitutional monarchy uh, like in, uh, Britain and Canada. Nonetheless, there, there is a lot of interest in it. And um, the form of oath um, is not dissimilar in the sense that it is before God. Right. And uh, in terms of the word of God with the hand upon scripture, and we'll come to that in a moment. But just a quick word about uh, when we talk about this, that the, the, the linkage and the significance um, biblically. Now, in scripture, um, monarchy or constitutional monarchy is one of the um, God-endorsed um, models of government. Um, what uh, many people uh, don't realize is that the the coronation service, that it is a religious uh, worship service, um, harks right the way back to the coronations of, um, of King David and King Solomon um, and uh, has, you know, uh, centuries of history in, uh, in Britain. So it is a reenactment of something historic um, that tells you something about the, the nature of the United Kingdom and of the Anglosphere, really, of the English-speaking world and, and uh, our constitutional uh, tradition, our fundamental beliefs about God, about government, about the rule of law, and so on. Um, but uh, what people often uh, don't realize is that uh, when, when they think of monarchy, they tend to think of absolutist monarchy, um, of mm -hmm. pagan conceptions of monarchy, and that is not the uh, historic English conception. In fact, the English Revolution was fought over the proper um, biblical understanding of the true Christian understanding of monarchy. Monarchy is not the only um, God-endorsed form of government in Scripture. You could uh, say that there is a kind of a, a, the, the sort of model of an early republic in the period of the judges as well. Um, and so... The, uh, the reality is that Christ's kingship is compatible with more than one form of uh, constitutional arrangement. And, uh, and so we've seen both work in um, America and in, um, and in the United Kingdom and Canada, providing a, a, a Christian basis. But it's important to note that even in the Bible, the king is limited. Mm. Uh, the king is limited by uh, the priesthood. Um, the, the king was not able to serve as priest. And in fact, King Saul uh, loses his kingdom for presuming to act as priest in the place of Samuel. So you have this very important separation and distinction. In fact, there is a, a division of powers in the uh, older covenant constitutional arrangement in Israel, not just priests, but you also have um, prophets uh, who were a constitutional check on the king and were were um, were independent really of the of the priesthood, um, and then you had local judges or elders in the constitution of of Israel, and these were elected. Um, there were another check, a kind of localism of local judges and elders, another check on the king. So you had a really a fourfold division of of power there. Um, and so the, it's not just the priesthood that's limited in the biblical model, it's kingship that's limited. And one of the ways it's limited, the, the, the one positive duty, actually, that is required of the king in the older covenant is that he reads the law of God every day, 
that he's not mm-hmm. lifted up. In fact, he had to write out a copy of the law and then was charged to read it all the days of his life. Not only that he might do justice, but that he not be lifted up above his brethren. Uh, in other words, the king is a servant, is a vassal king and is under law to God like the people. And then in a literate culture like Israel, where the priests and Levites are teaching the word of God and people are to read the word of God, um, the king is restrained then not only by the priesthood and by the prophets who know the law of God, but by the people themselves through the judges. And the king had to be from among the people as well. So the king was not to be a foreigner. That is somebody of of another faith, um, somebody who was from amongst the brethren, part of the covenant. Um, And actually that uh, understanding, the the first Pentecost really with the anointing of Saul is a civic Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's why in the coronation service, um, we still have, and anybody who watched it uh, or is familiar with the coronation service, there is anointing, an anointing ritual of the king where the king's robes are removed and he strips down to his shirt, just a white shirt, is kneeling and is humbled before God. Still considered so sacred that the cameras, cameras weren't allowed to witness the anointing of the king um, by mm-hmm. the elders, the presbyters or the priests. Uh, and... That's, uh, that, that harks back to the, the prophets of Israel and judges like Samuel, uh, the priests, um, anointing the kings and appointing uh, uh, the, the uh, well, God's direction from God's direction, then anointing the kings. And so that actually happened in the service. There's a, a literal anointing of the king um, in, in humility and as a vassal king, as a servant of God. Um, reminding uh, everyone, including the king, of his vice regency and vassal status uh, as a king, as a ruler, and accountability to the priesthood, to the prophets, to the church, and actually to judges, that is to the constitution of the land. And um, in a moment, we'll, we'll actually hear a clip of how that specifically relates to the word of God, um, the law of God. So, to avoid confusion, we're not, uh, the coronation is not about an absolute monarch and an absolute power and absolute reign and the destruction of um, democratic systems of election of local leaders and so on. No, it actually reinforces those distinctions. And although the king in, um, in uh, the United Kingdom is the head of the Church of England, that is the uh, established church, titular head of the church, he cannot function as a priest, mm-hmm. cannot function uh, as a preacher of the word of God or as a priest. That's actually in the constitution of the church. Um, and so there is a, even in the arrangement, and of course in America, there's no federal establishment of the church, but there were churches established at the state level. Establishment doesn't necessarily mean a conflation of sphere sovereignty it would be what uh, Herman Doiverd calls a structural interlacement but where the offices and the responsibilities and the jurisdiction are clearly limited so uh, and where that has been um, where the king has overreached historically um, or the queen where royalty has overreached it has been restrained then um, by uh, the constitutional reality of parliament um, and the, uh, if you will, the lesser magistrate. So there's a beautiful picture, really, 
um, of Psalm 2. You read Psalm 2 at the beginning of the program and the requirement that God has of all the kings of the nations, all the rulers, all the judges, all the magistrates of the nations, that they recognize God's king, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And That's they right. are called to do homage to the son, to kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So all the kings uh, of the earth are called to do homage. And the coronation service was um, the uh, the king, King Charles III, doing homage to the son, kissing the son, uh, and submitting himself as a as a uh, vassal king. Now, in the um, perhaps, if I can say that there is one, there are, there are, of course pluses and minuses to the various constitutional arrangements in the uh, English speaking world, in the historically Christian world. Um, one um, advantage of, of kingship uh, within a constitutional monarchy is that it's quite a lot easier for people to feel patriotic, uh, to, be, to be proud of their nation, um, mm-hmm. uh, and to, uh, to celebrate um, uh, the, the, the coronation, which, which the vast majority of people did in Britain up and down the country, whatever side of the um, political arguments of the time you might be on, because the, uh, the although the prime minister was there and read a passage of scripture, um, the, uh, as a, uh, you know, as a mark of respect and, and co- constitutional recognition of what's happening, um, the, you, the, the king rises above the, the partisan political politics. And in fact, in the English constitution, um, doesn't really get involved and so uh, it gives you this ability to be um, for your country to be proud of your country to recognize god's work and god's grace in the history of your country even if you've got a prime minister or or a political leader or a or a cultural direction that you don't like Um, and i think for countries that don't have a christian constitutional monarchy that can be harder because if you perhaps don't like the president um, uh, at, at the time um, it can be a bit of a challenge to feel as patriotic as, as um, uh, in the same way, able to celebrate uh, your country as you might. Um, so that, there's there's swings and roundabouts. There's negatives too, but that would be one of the one of the pluses. And so it was a service really of vassal kingship. And um, uh, now many people would not be aware of how distinctly Christian it is. Um, a lot of the uh, discussions historically in America have been around the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and and how Christian is it really? Um, well, I think it's it is distinctly Christian. Um, the God that uh, one nation under God um, inv- was an, was was the Christian God, not some other God. And the presidential oath of office in America was taken on historically was taken on an open Bible uh, to to um, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, invoking the blessings and cursings of God upon the nation for obedience mm-hmm. or disobedience. So it's also a covenantal act. It's a covenantal oath before God uh, to serve God. Um, so it is historically rooted. That's not to say all of the founders weren't necessarily born again Christians. There was there was a variety of influences from revolutionary France, and there was some rationalism and some uh, 
some uh, sophisms there for sure. Um, uh, there were there were those that were you know um, rationalistic uh, in in philosophy, um, but nonetheless, yeah, it, it was still theology. it was still of a Christian character, and the people were a Christian people. Um, what uh, people might have been surprised about though, watching a service in the twenty first century uh, in twenty twenty three in a modern um, uh, constitutional uh, democracy. Um, was to see again the the um, Christian constitutional character, the distinctly Christian constitutional character of the nation. Don't forget, the last time this happened was in um, 1953, when the vast majority right. of people today That's weren't right. even alive. And how many people have actually in Canada or, or Great Britain watched the coronation service through of Queen Elizabeth II to, to see and recognize the Christian constitutional character of their country. Most have never seen it. Um, mm -hmm. They've never seen a, a coronation service. The closest they got to see the constitutional character of the country really was the Queen's funeral last year um, and the nature of that service. Um, but it had, of course, that had less to do with the constitutional character of the nation in terms of the character of the service. There were symbols, signs, and so on of Christian character, but... Um, not to this degree. So this was a first for many, many people. And the fact that it's happening in the 21st century is a shock to some. Uh, it angers others who are on the on the uh, atheistic, secular uh, end of the equation here and mm -hmm. elsewhere. And of course, the question arises about, you know, how how much substance is there to this? You know, how real is it? Um, is it just pomp and pageantry and... Uh, and ceremony and, and how much real faith is connected to it. But maybe we can discuss that in a, in a moment. But, uh, you know, this is this is a, a history. It's, it's a once in a lifetime experience for most people. Um, and uh, the living memory of most does not remember the, the, the coronation of our previous head of state. So it was really significant. And um, Ryan, I know what you're going to do uh, now is um, is play us just a very short clip from the very, very beginning, the first words actually of the service, apart from the the songs and hymns that are going on as the the king uh, walks down the aisle of Westminster Abbey, um, the first words of the service are really important, and I think you're going to play those so that we can discuss them. Yeah, let's uh, let's play that short clip now. Your Majesty. As children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. Okay. So, there we have a, uh, a young boy welcoming uh, this... Uh, what... Uh, what is he before the coronation? It's not incumbent. Um, what's the uh, uh, the incumbent constitutional the question? He's still the, he's, <laughs> he is the king, but uh, um, he's uh, he's not yet been formally uh, uh, crowned, um, yep. and uh, so he hasn't taken the effectively taken the oaths. This would have been in the past; would have been a very sensitive period between the death of the previous monarch and the. 
uh, and the coronation of the of the next one. That was when disputes might happen about succession. So it, it is a yeah. would have been historically a you know a, quite a nervy a nervy a nervy period. But um, a, a boy there uh, in uh, in ceremonial robes. Very very interesting wording, isn't it? Uh, this is the head of state of a modern Western nation. Uh, and he says, the boy says to the king, a child, very significant, mm -hmm. significant that it's a child. A child says to the king, your majesty is children of the kingdom of God. We welcome you in the name mm -hmm. of the king of kings. Um, what a statement. Uh, immediately what's happening there is a child is relativizing the role of the king, the monarch, the highest office in the land in terms of the kingship of Jesus Christ um, and welcomes the king into this uh, amazing, beautiful church uh, for, a, for a service that will recognize God's authority over him. And the king's response, as you heard, is in, the, in his name. And after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. So there is the statement of the vassal of of vice regency um, of right. a of the occupying of an office under God um, to to serve in the name of the king, uh, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's a child that uh, that that declares the priority of the kingdom of God It's absolutely remarkable. And um, but what I want to to point out that's so incredibly important about this is that it sets up the entire service as a service of cutting covenant of oath taking right that what's about to take place is uh, a covenant between god and king and the king and the people so uh there's there's an oath being taken um by the king in uh, response to God and in response to the king's oath, the people take an oath. This is the very foundation of the idea of a common law, that without a common faith and a common law, you cannot have a kingdom. Uh, you mm. cannot have a, a society. You need a common oath and a common law in order to have a covenant. And what's actually taking place here is that the head of state representing the nation is covenanting before God, before the priesthood, to serve God and the nation in the hearing of everybody so that everybody can hear the oath. Uh, God hears the oath. The congregation hears the oath. And the covenant is made between uh, God and the king and therefore between God and the people through the king. And that means that there is mutual accountability on both sides. Oaths are only taken to confirm a covenant. And um, I, the reason I'm emphasizing this is that um, very often today you hear Christians say that uh, when you talk about the, if, if we talk about the lordship of Christ or the centrality and authority of his law in a nation, you'll often hear Christians, including uh, some theologians and pastors say, well, you know, uh, people aren't in covenant with God today as the people of Israel were. Right. There's no there's yeah. no there's no yeah. there's no covenant today. And so therefore, 
um, you know, America or Britain or Canada, they're not bound to, to, to the Lordship of Christ. We're not bound to God's law. There's, there's no covenant. Well, actually, that isn't true. It's true yeah. that the character of the covenant with Israel was unique. Uh, they were to be a light to the nations. They were called to be a kingly royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that um, all the nations might look at the constitution and law of Israel. This is in Deuteronomy 4 and see it and emulate it because they would say, who has a God like their God? Who has laws so just and so righteous as their laws? So the nations would then emulate the covenant that Israel had with God. Now, there was a peculiar calling for Israel to be the bearers of the covenants of promise and, of course, to bear the seed of the woman to that very moment until Simeon in the temple of God could say, now let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared before all the peoples um, to be mm -hmm. a light um, to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So in a sense there, you have Simeon saying, Israel's role as a nation state, that covenant, that role is done. Now let Israel depart in peace. Let the faithful servants of Israel depart in peace, because now we've seen your salvation for all the peoples alike to all the Gentiles. And so, mm -hmm. of course, the Old Testament is full of these prophecies about the, the kings of the earth bringing their tribute to the king of all kings. And uh, so, yes, Israel's covenant was a unique one, but it was a prelude to the covenant that would be with actually all the nations that God requires of all the nations, the oath that God requires of all the nations that you read, Ryan, at the beginning of our conversation uh, in Psalm 2. The oath, the homage, the agreement that is necessary between God, the living God, and his Christ, and all vassal kings, all leaders, is to do homage to the mm -hmm. Son, to walk before him, to obey him, to serve him. And that's what Romans 13 yeah. um, is actually about. So mm -hmm. the oath character here is really important. And when, when people say amen, of course, that goes on throughout the service. The king says amen. The, 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 the pastors or the priests are saying amen. The people are saying amen. To say amen is... Uh, a form of oath. Prayers are a form of oath. If you listen to the present, and if you haven't seen the coronation service, even if it's just as a matter of theological interest, I would encourage people to watch it. It's only a couple of hours. You listen to the character of the prayers and the nature of the oath. Oath presupposes a common faith and a common law, and that's why it's a religious service. Um, mm -hmm. That's why we have a common law. That's why there's the significance, the very significant role that the Bible plays. And we're going to show that in just a moment uh, in the service. And uh, treason, the concept of treason actually means to give up or to betray the oath. And so treason could be committed both not just by the people to to betray the oath that they're making to the king um, to, 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 uh, before God to God and to the king um, before God, to betray the oath is treason. But the king could betray the oath as well. And uh, that's precisely why um, the, uh, the, the, there was mutual obligation, actually, both parties. The oath rests on covenant uh, and on covenant law. 
And that means that there are binding obligations on both sides. The king is committing to his side. The people are committing to their side. And they're all committing to it before God in his name, in terms of his word. That's a that's an oath. Oath is a the binding oath is to ratify a covenant, an agreement between God and the people, between God and the king, between the king and the people. And treason against the oath was not just accountability for the people, but accountability to the king. And actually, the reformers and the Puritans recognized that uh, violation of that uh, covenant oath, uh, 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 violating the obligations to the magistrates, to the justices, to parliament, um, meant being cut off. And in the case, of course, of Charles I, um, because he refused Mm -hmm. to back down from his absolutist claims, it meant that he was killed. He was actually That's executed right. by Parliament. And that was the Cromwellian era, of course, although it wasn't Cromwell personally. He was only part of uh, the um, parliamentary powers that um, supported, the, in the end, the execution of the king. So that was because they saw it as an oath and as a covenant. There was, in fact, a solemn league and covenant Uh, sworn in England that was ratified by, was called that, the Solemn League and Covenant. It was even ratified by Charles II. And so this is hugely significant because there are penalties, there are consequences, and we'll come to that at the end, for violation of the oath uh, of the covenant. Um, The covenant agreement to serve God, to further the gospel, and to serve the people. And the role of defender of the faith um, is not a preaching role um, uh, that's being uh, upheld here for the king in in some way or another. Um, It's not a priestly role. It's that in his office as head of state, he is to defend the people in terms of the covenant that he's going to defend, in this particular case, the Protestant Reformed religion. Uh, that he's going to uh, defend the re- the religious character and life of the people. He's not going to subvert it. He's not going to swim the Tiber to Rome in, in this instance. He's not going to become a Muslim or a Hindu. He's not going to abandon the faith that is the ground and the basis of the Constitution with uh, and the covenant with the people. The Constitution is Christian. The covenant is Christian, and it's before God. And that's what it means to be defender of the faith. Doesn't mean he's a teacher of theology. Doesn't mean he's a preacher in the church or a, a priest within the church. It means that constitutionally, as the as the as the head of state, he is obliged to keep the law, to maintain the law, and to defend God's church and defend the evangelical faith. That's actually what it means. It's a, it's quite remarkable, and um, in this instance, despite a lot of pressure behind the scenes. Uh, uh, at least um, within the bureaucracy and politically, to change the service in some way, it stayed remarkably Mm -hmm. uh, similar to the coronation in 53. It was shorter. Uh, There were certainly efforts to to recognize that uh, the UK has various peoples living within it, various cultures and ethnicities. That's that's been true for the British Commonwealth for for many, many years. but there were no readings from the Quran. There were no prayers offered by people of other faith or anything. This was a distinctly Christian service and ceremony. 
So mm-hmm. in order to illustrate that, Ryan, I know we've got another little clip for people, which, which I think they'll be really interested in. Do you want to introduce that and, um, and, and just play it for us? Yeah, absolutely. No, I was, uh, I was similarly struck uh, in the, uh, the coronation oath, as you say, how, how similar it was to, uh, to Elizabeth's uh, oath. And in both cases, just how how explicit was the uh, the gospel proclamation uh, in that oath? So let's uh, let's play this uh, this longer clip here. It's not that long. It's just just a couple minutes. Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes. Receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world has to offer. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Your Majesty, The church established by law, whose settlement you will swear to maintain, is committed to the true profession of the gospel, and in so doing, will seek to foster an environment in which peoples of all faiths and beliefs may live freely. The coronation oath has stood for centuries and is enshrined in law. Are you willing to take the oath? I am willing. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, your other realms and the territories to any of them belonging or pertaining, according to their respective laws and customs? I solemnly promise so to do. Will you, to your power, cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? I will. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline and government thereof, as by law established in England? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches there committed to their charge all such rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain to them or any of them? All this I promise to do. The things which I have here before promised I will perform and keep, so help me God. So, Joe, uh, that you you mentioned before that uh, there's a, there's legitimate uh, legitimate skepticism about you know how how genuine is the faith behind the uh, behind these oaths or how how legitimate is the uh, the faith of these these people this man himself, um, but like what a you know what a strong 
proclamation, like what a serious, heavy, and explicitly Christian charge to keep. Yes. And you'll notice that it's not, uh, it's not vague. Um, yeah. There's no ambiguity about which God we're talking about. It's not some sort That's of vague right. preamble, like, uh, you know, recognizing the supremacy of God. It's the preamble to the Canadian Charter. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that how distinctly Christian this is. And, uh, you know, want people to notice a few things. And I, I know that people who are listening on, on their podcast, not watching this, um, will not see the imagery. But the king is kneeling for much of this part of the service. He has his hands mm-hmm. on the Bible, uh, resting his hands on a, an, an ancient uh, King James Bible um, and swearing this oath. And uh, you'll notice that he concludes there with, so help me God. So this yep. is a public declaration before God, because you've got the presence there, of, obviously, of the church and then all the people. You've got uh, um, members of the House of Lords as well are present, members of Parliament and so on. This is a public act of religious commitment. Um, and um, particularly as well, people will have noticed or perhaps been surprised by that the leader of the Church of Scotland brings him the Bible at the very beginning of the, the segment we just played. He hands him the Bible. That's when the, um, uh, the, the oath is about to be taken on the Bible. And he tells him that this is the royal law. This yeah. is the law for kings. That harkens right back. Remember I said that the kings of Israel were required to write out a copy of the law and to read it and to do it. So it goes right back there to, to the Israelite constitution. Here's the royal law. This is the law for the government of, of princes. For the, it's, it's the rule of life. The, the, this is the, the most precious gift, uh, he's told, the world affords. These yeah. are the lively oracles of God. Um, and it's on that that he goes on to swear to uphold um, the faith, the true Protestant reformed religion, to advance the gospel and the law of God in his realm. That, that's in, it's, it's astonishing um, for anybody who is not. I mean, I talk in the mission of God, uh, my book, of course, about the coronation oath. But even then, it sounds because it was referring to Queen Elizabeth II, it can, it can feel um archaic or anachronistic or ancient history etc um but here it is current uh, this oath being taken in the name of god in the name of christ um on the word of god before the priesthood before uh, judges and magistrates and 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 um uh, rulers of the people so you've got in a sense all the representatives of the various divisions of power you've got the legislative branch uh You've got uh, so you've got representatives of commons and lords. You've got priesthood. You've got king, um, and uh, you could argue as well because there were present at this service members of the, the free churches as well, some of who prayed prayed, uh, prayed blessings later on. That you had the prophetic offices there as well. So you've got a real sort of mirror image here of the uh, Israelite constitution, um, and the homage is being done uh, to God. And the rule of law uh, is being uh, affirmed and the advancement of the gospel is being uh, affirmed. So, I mean, the, as you say, the, the, this part of the, the coronation in particular, but I mean, all of it, but this part, part especially speaks for itself about the historic Christian constitutional character of Great Britain, 
of um, Canada where, and everywhere where the, the, um, the, the king is the, the head of state. Uh, and the legacy, the inheritance that we have received. So as you say, there is legitimate skepticism around, um, okay, what's the substance of this for many perhaps of the politicians? I think when it comes to King Charles himself, um, the, the, well, really the issue is uh, he's made this oath before God. God will be his judge. Um, That's right. Uh, the, uh, yeah. I mean, around the time of the death of his mother, um, he did reaffirm, uh, and um, I have it on good authority from people much closer to the, um, the hierarchy than I am, that um, there, was a, there was a genuine reaffirmation of uh, his mother's faith um, that, uh, you know, and again, because I've, I, I haven't sat with King Charles and chatted with him about his faith, I can't say either way about his, uh, status of, of, of his confession of faith personally and his, um, the, the, the reality of the new birth in his life. I, I'm not going to presume on this program to be judge and jury over any of that. Um, that's, mm -hmm. that's not my place, but there, the, the but he, he was, uh, willing to take this oath. And so at uh, this point, um, I think we're obligated to take the man at his word. What will be the fruit? Will, will the issue will now be a discernment process. Um, this is in a sense, day, day three <laughs> after, after the coronation. Um, so, you know, the, the t time will tell um, the seriousness of his desire to defend the gospel and the law of God and to uh, defend the church and so on. Um, but, uh, and I'll come in just a moment to God's, uh, word on that particular issue, but mm -hmm. there is, um, a sense among some that I know that, uh, his, um, there is a genuine faith. It may be limited. It may be weak. Uh, it may be misguided in places. Uh, there may be some error, um, but then there is, uh, a, a genuine confession there. And of course, um, he will have had to have agreed he, uh, to this form of service uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we can say, you know, we need to pray. Uh, we need to pray that, uh, that this is, that the confession is real, that the oath is real, that the covenant is real. Uh, if for no other reason than it's inviting God's judgment, if it isn't. Um, yeah. As far as the, the, the Church of England is concerned, uh, of course, you've got great mixture there. And you've got tremendous mixture represented. You've got people there whose faith is genuine participating in this service, um, whose submit, submission to the word of God is serious and real. And you've got those who we know for a fact it isn't. For example, the liberal Bishop of London is involved in the service. Um, two female bishops, which, again, we would uh, argue at, Ezra, at the Ezra Institute that... Uh, uh, the ordination of um, of women and of women bishops is unscriptural and is right. in violation of God's right. word. And there were churches within the Church of England to this day who rejected female bishops and who have alternative oversight uh, provided by the Church of England because they will not accept the authority of female bishops. Um, so you've got a mixture there. You've definitely got people who do not believe the gospel participating in this service. But I would say that uh, as, as many um, paedo-baptists in the paedo-baptist tradition would recognize, whether they be Presbyterian, Reformed, uh, Anglican, 
um, that just because there may be unbelievers participating in a baptism service does not invalidate the oath, does not invalidate the baptism. Uh, and uh, you may have a, a parents even um, in some cases who are who are not believing, um, but that doesn't invalidate the the uh, the baptismal oaths and um, and what the church is recognizing and doing. Um, so there are there are cases, for example, when um, uh, oaths are taken when people decide they want to get married in a church. Marriage is an oath; it's a covenant. It's a covenant mm-hmm. being made before God and before the people. And unbelievers participate in that. That doesn't mean that God doesn't take their oath seriously or that the service of marriage is invalidated. That's uh, right. And so I would say here, just because we know that there are um, apostates participating in this, that the whole service before God is somehow invalidated, I don't believe that's the case. I think God takes this very seriously. So you're right mm-hmm. that um, we need to be uh, judicious. We need to um, have our discernment hat on. We need to be aware that um, many of the people, some of the people at least, participating in this service are not serious or they don't at least recognize the seriousness of the oaths that they are taking. They don't recognize as seriously as as they should the presence of God when God's presence is invoked by God's people who don't take seriously enough uh, the, uh, the, the very presence of God in their midst and who don't take seriously the, the the reality of God's judgment when we make oaths before him and how seriously he takes that. So we recognize that. I hope that goes without saying that at the Ezra Institute, that you and I and those associated with us recognize that um, pageantry and ceremony alone um, does not thereby constitute a Christian nation. Um, and uh, it does not mean that uh, next week we're going to start seeing a revision of British law in terms of biblical law. And I don't think it means that we're going to see a, a sudden mass turning to Christ among parliamentarians and members of the House of Lords. We pray I that you were it would. Post-millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Post-millennials play the long game, as you know. So eventually, Amen. yes, everything that's said here, because because actually, I would say in many respects, you make a good point, Ryan. Because actually we're invoking God's covenant and God's uh, justice and God's judgment in this ceremony, that it will tend toward either being the nation being drawn to faith and obedience in terms of their oath or being judged and set aside. It can only mean one of those two things. Now, I believe that in the long run, it will mean a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ because 1 Corinthians 15 is clear that the kingdom will be handed over by the Lord to the Father, having brought everything um, into, uh, made everything subject to himself. He's going to hand the kingdom over to the Father and the last enemy to be defeated then will be death. But in the short term, in the medium term, um, this service, this ceremony is invoking, Ryan, the judgment of God, uh, the justice of God, either in blessing uh, because of faithfulness. So it could have invoked blessing or if Mm -hmm. there's unfaithfulness, it is invoking God's curse, which is his justice in being set aside, being um, uh, exiled, if you will. There's a moment. uh, uh, This is this is kind of reinforced in in a remarkable moment in the service where the orb 
there's an orb uh, with a cross on the top of it, a large cross that is presented to the king uh, after the oaths are taken. And um, he is then reminded by the archbishop as he receives the orb that he receives the orb set under the cross to, to, so that he is reminded that all the world, all the earth is subject to the empire of Jesus Christ. That the whole world is under Christ. That's the wording. Literally, the empire of Jesus Christ. It's the whole world is under Christ. And he as a king, as if you will, a minor monarch, as a mere vassal under the Lord Jesus Christ, is placing himself under the lordship and empire of Jesus Christ. And that can only mean, Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So I think as Christians, we shouldn't get too het up about or frantic or frustrated even with the fact that we know that there are church people there, female bishops who deny the gospel, that there are churchmen there, whose grasp on the authority of God's word is less than it should be, and that we mm -hmm. may even be dealing with a king kneeling and kissing the Bible as he does, kissing the son, who is less than adequate in his faith, uh, who uh, does not recognize because he's been poorly taught, perhaps, the authority of God's law, and doesn't fully recognize the implications of Christ's lordship. If that is the case, Christ who is the king of all and the king of all kings, in whose name he was welcomed into that place of worship. That as children of the kingdom and uh, of the king of kings, we, we welcomed him into that service to take these oaths. Um, the, the sobering reality of this service is that God will judge. God is not mocked. Right. And that's why it's so related, as you said, to the post-millennial hope, because God isn't mocked. Uh, he is the judge of all the earth. As I'm saying that, I'm hearing peals of thunder and lightning outside of my window. I don't know whether you can hear those. But I can. Uh, I can it, hear that quite... too. That was uh, that was punctuated very, uh, very <laughs> appropriately. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful timing. Thank you, Lord, for the uh, for the thunder and lightning outside my window. Just as I was saying that, um, that uh, because this is a serious business, and and I'm not going to set myself up as judge and jury mm -hmm. over those who have um, sworn that oath before God, who have engaged in that covenant. Because that's the very purpose of it, Ryan. Just as the president of the United States, Joe Biden, took an oath of office on the Bible, he invoked the judgment or the blessing of God on himself. That's and right. uh, that is what King Charles III has just done. And I'm going to pray for him. And, I, and we actually pray for him regularly at our church here locally in my village. It's part of the service that you pray for the king. We should be praying for presidents, for kings, because the Bible commands us to. Uh, yes. We are commanded by the apostles to pray for those in government who rule over us um, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives um, in all godliness. And if the nation goes into apostasy, you can't live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness because the legislation moves against the Christian faith. Uh, persecution comes to the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. Um, so we are to pray, and I'm going to pray for the king, that he takes these oaths seriously, that his eyes are fully open to their full implications, that his, his eyes are open to the royal law, and that he 
uh, with the, the constitutional, the limited constitutional power that he has, uh, actually uses it to hold parliament and the church uh, leaders to account in terms of his oath. Um, and uh, if he takes that seriously, by the way, and parliament doesn't, and the church fails to take it seriously, uh, then parliament and the church is acting treasonously against God. And if right. the king fails to take the oath seriously, he is acting treasonously towards God, the church and the people to whom and before whom he sworn the oath. So um, that's the significance of it. The king is told, remember always in the service that the kingdom of this world I love these words. This is this is so post-millennial, Ryan. Listen, listen to these words Preach. when he receives the orb. <laughs> Preach it. Uh, uh, and he receives the orb with the cross set under it, being reminded that ev the whole world is under the empire of Christ. He's told these words. Remember always that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Amazing. Amen. He's told this. So it, now our obligation, my obligation, uh, Canadian's obligation, where the king is the head of state, and, and, my, and, as, and as a Brit, my obligation, I'm both British and Canadian, actually, but as an English citizen, as I'm born and raised here, um, my obligation now is to pray for the king, to pray mm -hmm. for the government, because mm -hmm. that's what the apostles tell us to do. Um, and as a, as a prophet, and where I'm speaking to pastors who are also priests in the life of the church, but we're all, in a sense, as Christians, we're all prophets, priests, and kings in Christ. We are to pray for those in authority. We're also to hold them accountable in terms of their oath, in terms of their word, uh, in terms of the word of God, in terms of the royal law, in terms of the lively oracles of God. So, um, you know, there we have it, really. That was the coronation. Yeah. Um, that was the witness to the gospel. As I was watching some of this uh, with a, in Texas with a with a Texan friend of mine, um, and we were uh, discussing the, the 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 service together, um, we were talking about the fact that uh, yes, there's revisionism in our countries. There's there's the revisionists of the U.S. Constitution who want to undermine the Constitution, and of course there are revisionists um, in uh, in Britain. But at the end of the day. Our nations were built on covenants. The United States, um, with the Puritan colonies, um, and uh, with their their covenantal understanding. I mean, the word covenant is so important as a fundamental political word um, that uh, there were there was really a, a a covenanting before God to be a city on a hill in America, to be a, a nation that would be obedient to God. Um, mm -hmm. where his church would be free to serve him, to worship him, and to, uh, and to obey him. And uh, the, the fact that we see rebellion and, and, and apostasy in our countries um, is in part a sign of God's um, judgment and uh, justice. And the way we're seeing um, real decay right now in the West uh, across the board is an aspect of his just God's justice and his judgment when oaths and covenants um, are not taken seriously. Let me um, let me close with um, the, some words from Zechariah chapter five verses uh, one mm, through four, uh, which I, I think are uh, powerful and significant. At least wrap up my comments on this, where um, 
the prophet is seeing a vision and he says, I looked up again, beginning in verse one of Zechariah five. And he said, I and saw a flying scroll. What do you see? He asked me. I see a flying scroll, I replied, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Um, and uh, by the way, that was the um, that that was the exact dimensions of the of the temple, the temple porch right. in first yep. Kings chapter three, verse six. So he's seeing a scroll. That's the word of God. Um, and um, the scroll is the dimensions of the temple porch where the law of God was preached. And then he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land for every thief will be removed according to what is written on one side. And everyone who swears falsely will be removed according to what is written on the other side. So there you have the covenantal aspect, two sides, mutual obligations. And verse four says, I will send it out. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will stay inside his house and destroy it along with its timbers and stones. So there in, in, in a vision, what the prophet is seeing is the law of God goes out. The word of God goes out. And when we make oaths and we swear before God and we make covenant with God, um, we're bound to the law of God. In fact, the prophet Isaiah talks about it being the, the, um, the everlasting law, the everlasting covenant right that has been made uh and the uh, and it's it's a it's a covenant actually that Isaiah talks about with the nations and this comes to fruition in Christ's kingship uh that he is the king of all kings he's the ruler of the kings of the earth revelation 1 5 the coastlands mm -hmm. wait for his law the prophet says and his law goes out into all the world that's the scroll and it enters the house and it enters the, the, the dwelling places. And this is, of course, especially true of those who make public oaths. It talks about there the thief uh, or the one who swears falsely. God doesn't block his ears, this means. God, God sees, he knows. His, his word is being preached. His law has been preached. His gospel has been preached. It goes out into the houses of the nations and it brings blessing or cursing. And it, it, and it remains, even when we think, oh, it's out of sight, out of mind. No, it remains and it remains binding and it will stay in the house and destroy it with its timbers and stones, those who swear falsely. And that's a warning actually to everybody. And it's also a mm -hmm. warning to kings and to presidents who make an oath, who swear, who make covenant, who swear on the word of God. God doesn't forget his scroll goes out into all the nations it's the dimensions of the porch of the temple. It's where his word is preached and it has a binding force. And we cannot swear falsely and think that we will get away with it. Whether we're the king of, of the United Kingdom or the president of the United States or even the things that are going on now in Canada. And I know that next week we will, we will touch on those as we deal with the, uh, the commandment actually about swearing falsely. That's the ninth right. commandment. Yep. Um, and, and, and next week we're going to talk about while this very coronation was going on, what was happening in Canada with an attempt to uh, basically the plan to remove the Christian symbols from the coat of arms in Canada. But we'll touch on that yep. uh, as we deal next week with um, false oaths. And that's probably a, a good setup, really, for 
uh, return to the Ten Commandments next week when we deal with with oath taking. But that's the significance of what's just happened. Joe, thanks a lot for uh, for walking us through that uh, analysis of the coronation. It is uh, we we recognize we're, we're good Protestants. All of us live uh, coram deo. All of us are a kingdom of priests to God. But it is uh, it's not for nothing that uh, that we speak about you know a heavy crown and the the weight of of leadership. So the uh, yeah the, the the takeaway really pray pray for King Charles. Um, Pray for yeah. England, pray for all of our nations, that uh, that our our leaders would would govern justly and would uh, would turn and repent and kiss the sun. That's uh, that's our exhortation to uh, to all of our leaders in civil government. It's our exhortation to uh, to you and me and uh, and all of us here. So until uh, until next week. I remind you that this is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. And as we, uh, as we always uh, are mindful from him and through him and to him are all things. May God alone be glorified. Amen.